0: Welcome back to the Temporary Fandoms Podcast, where we gamely assault entire discographies in order to try and understand what makes certain bands work. We started life as a Facebook group that soldiers on at facebook.com groups slash tempfans, and you're more than welcome to join. We're a friendly bunch, and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've met several members already. Meanwhile, back on the podcast incarnation of this musical folly, we've taken on ESG, The Pogues, The Butthole Surfers, David Bowie, Yola Tango, Can, and Queens of the Stone Age. Today, it's the turn of Spoon. You can find us all over the place, but we're hosted at Beat Rehab. That's beat.rehab/tempfans, which includes links to the Spotify edit of the show, where the album introductions are intercut with sample tracks. It's by far my favourite way to listen, And if you're all up to date with your Temp fans listening, you can dip your toes into the often hilarious Dancing About Architecture podcast. Anyhow, the question we're posing today is what makes Spoon tick? Join me, Ewan, Emily Baldoni and William Shung as Temp fans take on Austin's most consistent pop-rock post-punk revivalists, Spoon.
1: Welcome to episode 12, 13, 14, 14, 14, 14 of 10. Tempo- how I listen, I genuinely forget every time. I don't know how it's like I've got some mental block. Episode 14 or season two, episode two, if you're keeping track. Is
0: that That's how the right, seasons work?
1: Nick. Okay. I didn't know Broad that. We're on seasons. Excellent. Um, <laughs> the last episode was Queens of the Stone Age. So uh, go and listen to that where you found this um, as Nick will no doubt have said in his pre- Credits intro, there is a Spotify playlist somewhere, doesn't work on shuffle, but honestly, that's a really good way to um, digest um, the pod. In fact, guest today, Emily Baldoni, who you will remember from previous pods, I believe commented on the Facebook group that it's a perfect way to drive through the mountains.
2: Uh, I mean, through the mountains, or I, I drove through the mountains, I also drove across, uh, like, the flatlands of the Midwestern United States listening to the podcast, it was quite good for both of them. It was a good, you know, good mixture of music to, to words, um, good for maintaining your attention and both in all landscapes, all landscapes,
1: <laughs> works no, in all landscapes, them. excellent. <laughs> That has, that. A, a, that has to be a Jerks tagline. In um, landscapes. For, for a lad from the, the centre of England, uh, Wolverhampton, um, the idea that my my voice is is being listened to as people drive across the Midwest still seems a little bit surreal, even if it is only just one car. So that was Emily Baldoni, who last time was on was the Bowie Pods, and we're also joined by um, author of The Accidental Terrorist, William Shun. Hey, hey Bill.
3: Hi, how's it going?
1: Not too bad. Um, Oh, I haven't done this in many a pod. Where are you calling us from?
3: I'm calling you from Upper Manhattan in New York City. And uh, I hear your voices on the podcast while I'm doing the dishes (laughs) just around the corner.
1: Perfect for any household chore. Um, So, Bill, who are we going to be looking at today?
3: Today we're going to be talking about the indie rock darlings from Austin, Texas, Spoon.
1: Awesome. And how many albums?
3: Uh, Nine studio albums from Spoon plus one side project, The Divine Fits.
1: Cool. And we'll obviously get to that in the round table. Why? Why Spoon?
3: Spoon? Well, besides being one of my favorite bands, uh, I think they are the quintessential American indie rock band in that uh, they fought their way up from minor success to, um, to having their dreams devastated, to rebuilding everything from the ground up and have made themselves a little uh, cottage industry with a mix of rock minimalism, Really poetic lyrics full of allusions and just more different kinds of hooks than you can shake a stick at. And they've changed their sound constantly over 20 years. And I just find them to be an inspiration.
1: Awesome. Perfect. Um, well, I know for a fact that, I mean, you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. Emily, where are you on, or pre listened in preparation for this, where were you on the spoonometer of fandom?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I was I was actually kind of interested to to listen them, to them again because I I listened to Spoon a lot when I was in college actually because um, a couple of those early albums, what I think um, like Girls Can Tell and Kill, Kill the Moonlight both came out when I was when I was in college and I listened to them a lot then and then I sort of just I kind of fell off them and I didn't I hadn't listened to them for years and years before that so I was sort of curious to see whether it was that my taste had changed or whether it was things that changed in their sound or or what
1: of course and um regular listeners will know that we've had a few episodes in the past that were let's say nick driven and um for example can you may not have realized that i wasn't the massive can fan after listening to those two episodes but this episode was brought back by me and nick was slightly reticent so nick how is your spoon well mometer before we started?
0: Well, well mometer.
1: Well mometer. How is uh, well, your well
0: mometer? Uh, <laughs> well, it's um, I'm it's 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 pointing towards under.
1: Okay. Let's well we'll find out how under or overwhelmed uh, everybody is when we come back. Um, slightly different setup this time instead of one voice talking you through all the spoon albums, you're going to hear both uh, Bill and Mine alternating sort of, I just sort of wanted to get involved. And you'll hear all of that after this.
3: Hello Temp fans. I could not be more excited to introduce one of my favorite bands in the world who are not just meticulous craftsmen in the studio but also a ferocious live act, a little outfit, from Austin, Texas called Spoon. Since first discovering them a little late back around 2004, I've seen them live probably half a dozen times. I've bought every new album on its release day and I've scoured eBay and Discogs.com and less reputable corners of the internet to gather every last recorded scrap of Spoon-related ephemera I can lay hands on. Hello, my name is Bill and I'm a Spoonaholic. But the highly polished juggernaut that is Spooned today bears only a passing resemblance to the scrappy little band that came together in Austin in 1994. How did they get from there to here? Songwriter and vocalist Britt Daniel grew up in the central Texas town of Temple, where, as he told the magazine Texas Monthly in 2004, his taste in music made him the coolest kid in high school. It's just that nobody else knew it. Britt arrived at the University of Texas in 1989, where he pursued a radio television film degree and played in a number of bands. One of those groups, Skellington, named for the Julian Cope album, issued a couple of releases on tiny local labels. And Britt put out a couple of extremely lo-fi solo releases on cassette tape under the name Drake Tungsten, but it was a country rockabilly band called Alien Beats that would change the course of his life. That's where, in 1992, Britt met drummer Jim Eno, a slightly older electrical engineer who had just moved to Austin to design microchips for Motorola. Alien Beats broke up, but Britt and Jim hit it off enough to form a new band, which they called Spoon, naming it, somewhat randomly, after a song by the Krautrock group Can. And incidentally, you may have heard a thing or two about Can on a couple of earlier episodes of this podcast. Brit and Jim have been the rhythm and soul of Spoon ever since, the constant nucleus of an ever-evolving lineup that originally also included Andy McGuire on bass and harmony vocals. Their first EP, Nefarious, came out from Fluffer Records in 1994. They recorded their spiky full-length debut, Telefono, in producer John Croslin's Garage Studio for about $3,000, then started shopping it around. They eventually signed with Matador Records, which prompted Britt to quit his job as a sound effects engineer for a video game company. Telefono came out in 1996, and immediately attracted a small but fanatical fan base, some of whom still think it's their best album. Though at first listen, this album would seem to be a pretty standard issue, soft-loud-soft soft affair in the vein of The Pixies or Wire. On closer inspection, the songs reveal themselves to be more loosely structured and surprising than they first appear. You'd be forgiven for thinking Brit Daniel had been mainlining Nirvana and little else, But scattered across the singles and EPs from these years, not to mention the Drake Tungsten cassettes, you can find covers of The Godfathers, The Cure, Paul McCartney, and Prince. It might not have been obvious yet, but those influences were also part of the DNA that would find full expression on Spoon's later releases. Soft
1: effects and a series of sneaks. Usually on temp fans, we only really focus on full studio albums, but the soft effects EP was a pivotal step. It linked the rough and ready wire infused Pixies-esque telephono with what was yet to come. From the opener, mountain to sound, we get a feeling of a band evolving. Simple rhythms, but they're getting repeated on. Looped back in, built on and then discarded. Brit still has the 90s alternative Screech. I was never a big fan of this. Evoking Black Francis, the band still seemed to be taking a step away from simply being another Pixie's inspired clone, and they're starting to take shape. The slur he uses on waiting for the kids to come out, perfectly wrapped up in this angular stop, start, pop and tight sounds, and we can already hear Brit singing and responding to himself. This call and response is a mechanism the band used several times uh, to fantastic effect in later albums nothing here outstays its welcome. I can see the dude is a sub 2 minute piece of classic 90s indie. Big soundscapes and then stops suddenly and makes way for the fuzzy get out of the state. Again, a tight, but this time laconic and broody track. It builds and builds and builds and then leaves you in the hands of some wistful power pop of lost leaders. As EPs go, it's an essential part of the band's canon. And personally, for me, a better place to start than Telephono. leave me a bit cold so if soft effects was this bridge what was on the other side well their time at matador was up feelings from the band that matador treated them as one of their more commercial acts they signed to electra releasing both the 30 gallon tank ep and a series of sneaks within a week or two the ep act as their big hey guys we're on a new label claxon utilitarian kicks in and kicks in hard carries on this angular jangle with another sub two minute track It has no right to contain as many grooves as it does. Brit screaming out its utilitarian. This is a band who are confident. They now know who they are and they are ready to be commercially and critically successful. The band are now essentially a three piece with new bassist Josh Zabo fleshing out this new tight lineup. And this album clocks in at 33 minutes, but spews out 14, yeah, 14 of the catchiest tracks you would hear in 98. Which in the U.S. with a year of neutral milk hotel and whole celebrity skin. One of the longest tracks clocks in at a whole four minutes and it's a broody, punchy, hook-filled, post-post-post-punk 30-gallon tank. It barrels away with raw energy and seems to be building and building to something that only Brit knows. As an aside, this album, like with most of Spoon's stuff, seriously rewards listening on headphones. You have isolated instruments floating around you, coming in and leaving you wanting more. And as a band, they truly are exceptional as a production force. Not the sexiest motif I know, but one I will come back to in later albums. With Car Radio, sorry, Cradio, Metal Detector and Utilitarian, the band were ready for their next big step, a commercial hit. And with Electra's A&R man Ron Lafitte ready to fight for them, nothing could go wrong. Well, I'll leave that story up to Bill.
3: Well, Spoon fans, not so fast. I'm afraid it's my sad duty now to relate a true tale of misery and woe that might have broken a lesser band, and nearly did this one. Our friend Ron Lafitte, the ultra-slick Electra VP who promised Spoon the world, yeah, well... After a series of sneaks was released, Lafitte started acting squirrely, dodging Spoon's phone calls and never showing up at any of their shows. The advertising push never materialized either. Four months later, Lafitte was fired from Elektra, something he had probably known was coming for some time. It wasn't much longer before Elektra, with a low-selling album on their hands that they didn't understand, dropped Spoon as well despite the multi-album contract. A less ambitious band would have retreated to lick its wounds. In fact, Spoon did that for a while as well. Britt Daniel moved to New York and took a job at Citibank, thinking the band was done. But Spoon eventually pulled themselves together and vented their anger in as public a way as possible. 1999 saw the release of the single The Agony of Lafitte, backed with Lafitte Don't Fail Me Now on Saddle Creek Records. This was a tiny Nebraska label founded by Connor Oberst, who as a teenaged fan had met Spoon in Omaha on their tour for Telefono. Despite the punny titles, the two tracks dripped with mournful vitriol for the slick huckster who had screwed them over. When they started touring again, the Lafitte single made them minor heroes to the fans who turned out to see them. Encouraged, Spoon began recording again, not just on their own, but on their own terms. Britt had become interested in adding instruments beyond guitar, bass, and drums to their sonic palette and in infusing his songwriting with a more classic pop sensibility. Jim Eno, for his part, was becoming more and more proficient as an audio engineer. Mike McCarthy, who kept crossing paths with Brit at parties in New York, was tapped as a producer, a role he would continue to play right up through 2007's "Gaga, Gaga, Ga Ga Ga. He talked about those recording sessions with Magnet Magazine in 2015, saying, "'I thought Brit was a star poet, a voice for a generation, and he has the most awesome, uniquely original and instantly identifiable voice.'" What's special about him is the sound of that voice and what he's saying. We also had an unwritten law back then. Every part had to be critical to making the song happen. If it wasn't, it was gone. Britt's occasional girlfriend at the time was Eleanor Friedberger, who would soon find her own success as half of the fiery furnaces with her brother Matthew. I have a really distinct memory of listening for the first time to Everything Hits at Once, she said to Magnet Magazine also. It's so radically different than anything he'd done before. This was the beginning of what we now recognize as the spoon sound. Stripped down and precise, every element in its right place, with Britt's voice and songwriting married to Jim's monster sense of rhythm. Originally titled French Lessons, Spoon began shopping their new album around to labels. The process took some time, but the record eventually made its way to Superchunk's Mac McCon, co-founder of Merge Records, who promptly signed them. The record came out in 2001 under the title Girls Can Tell, and it was a hit, at least by indie rock standards. Just as importantly though, especially in light of their bad experience at Elektra, It was something that Spoon themselves could be proud of. As Britt told the Austin Chronicle that year, This record is the first one I really like enough to say, Okay, we did something that if we're no longer a band next year, I'm always going to be, I really like this one. I think it's really good. It's something that, at least for me, will stand the test of time.